I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Uncork summer with the 2020 vintage of Babylon's Turin's Mouvaldre Rosé, an elegant dry rosé from our gardens in South Africa. Visit the new.co.uk forward slash RHS to learn more. Making sure that everybody does have a green space close to them is really important. You shouldn't have to get in a car or travel long distances to get to green spaces. You should be able to access it right on your doorstep. Dom Hall is passionate about bringing cities to life through their green spaces. It should be safe, it should feel like a positive community space, it should be well managed for wildlife, it should have stuff for kids to do in it. If you can provide those green spaces right on people's doorsteps, it makes an absolutely massive difference. He's the founder of a group trying to make Glasgow a national park city. The basic idea really uh, in any national park, and it would be the same in a national park city, is really that you put the culture, the natural heritage at the heart of what you do. So that's both in terms of how you plan the city and how you design the city, but also in terms of creating opportunities for people to enjoy those things. A national park city is a fairly new concept. London was named the first in the world last summer. And since then, the city has started to work towards making it 50% green using a team of rangers to make London healthier, greener and wilder. For Dom, the scheme is all about adjusting how people view their urban spaces. It changes people's ideas of what a city is about and it makes people realise that actually cities can be great places to go for a walk, to go for a run, to go for a cycle. And I think just getting people to realise that and realise they don't have to get in their car and drive out of the city, there's actually fantastic things they can do within the city. Which is why he thinks Glasgow is the perfect candidate. Glasgow is known as the dear green place, so it's got that at its very heart, traditionally always has done, and green spaces have always been a key part of the city. And I think a national park city brings some real opportunities for that, to work towards a sort of vision of a more equitable and healthier city as well as a greener one. Other cities around the world are striving for the same national park city status, including Adelaide in Australia, and Galway in Ireland. So today, we're exploring how to make urban areas healthier, more appealing places to live. Because of course gardening isn't limited to leafy countryside plots. From blooming canal barges to balconies bursting with greenery, we're taking a look at the creative ways people are gardening in cities. I'm Matthew Pottage, and this is Gardening with the RHS. My own garden certainly qualifies as a city garden. It's small, awkward, completely paved over and surrounded by fences and walls. 
but it's heaving with containers and I've packed in so many plants into every space and every window you look out of into the garden you see something mainly evergreens but lots of different foliage textures leaf shapes and different forms so regardless of the time of year the garden never looks like it's gone to sleep so this is why I wanted to hear more from Alice Vincent writer and balcony gardener she lives in South London and she knows a thing or two about gardening in smaller spots so let's join her two stories up I'm currently stood in the furthest corner away from the door which you walk onto the balcony. It's not very big. It's about five metres long by one and a half wide. What you can see in the kind of the back corner is a bamboo and this provides quite a lot of structure and height which helps to create the illusion of a bit of a, an urban jungle. Otherwise I've got an old vintage ladder which has got lots of pelargoniums and nasturtiums on and then if we head over to the other end of the balcony I've got something that a lot of people consider a weed and I think of as very beautiful which is redwood sorrel tumbling over the side of the balcony and I really love the wilderness element it gives. My favourite thing to do on the balcony is to come out here first thing in the morning when it's quiet and the air smells fresh and I just like to come out and not even do anything, just have a little look and just be. The birds are often singing, the light is very beautiful and it just feels like a moment that resets me for the rest of the day. Back inside, Alice told us more about where her love for balcony gardening came from. I first became interested in plants as a child. It was very, I grew up in the countryside and there was a lot of nature around us, but it wasn't something that I revisited until my mid twenties. And that was when I got a balcony and I started to grow things and it really rekindled an interest that I didn't even know was there. So growing things on the balcony was something that I kind of became hooked on just because of the way it made me feel. It was something that introduced a kind of meditative calm in me that I couldn't achieve by doing anything else. You know, some people run, some people do yoga, but for me, I was able to find space and catch a breath by tending to the soil and growing things. And I really didn't know what I was doing. I was a complete beginner. I'd not really been taught very much. Gardening on a balcony is unique because the constraints of your space are very much felt. So you will be at least one story above the ground. You might be 10 stories above the ground. You have unusual situations like excess wind or harsh exposure. It's a garden that has often a roof above it if you are underneath anyone else. I'm on the second floor, so I've got a little rain shadow, which can mean that you don't get access to natural rain as much as you'd like to. It also means that all of the compost, everything that you're growing in, has to be brought up several flights of stairs and everything is in containers. The plus side is that you don't really get as many of the pests that you can get on the ground. Not at first, anyway. I have a whole infestation of slugs at the moment who um, have climbed up 40 feet to attack my plot, which is quite something. But you get other challenges. You'll get nesting birds, you will get squirrels, you'll get all sorts of things. What I would say to beginner balcony gardeners is to look at your space. And it might not be very big, but you will at least 
have some understanding of where the light comes in and when, what direction it faces. That's the first step because once you understand those conditions, you can start planting to them. And then the next tip I'd say is buy or create the largest containers you can afford and accommodate because you're much better off, both from a design and from a gardening point of view, to have fewer, larger containers which you can plant up and treat like flower beds rather than lots of little pots that may only have one plant in. And this is better for, for all sorts of reasons, but you'll have to water them less, your plants will probably be more stable and you can accommodate more perennials with larger containers. So one of the mistakes that a lot of people make when they want to kind of green their space is that they'll sort of dash to the garden centre. They don't really know what to look for because how can they when they don't have that much knowledge? That's nobody's fault, it's just the situation. And they tend to spend an awful lot of money on plants that are often not right for their space and then they don't flourish or they might die and then people get very disheartened and they've spent a lot of cash. I started to garden with supermarket plants you can go and pick up trays of plug plants for less than a fiver. And a lot of these will flourish and will give you the beginning educational roadblocks of, of watering things, of feeding things, of planting things in space and light. So with regards to the plants, it goes right back to that classic adage, right plant, right place. So if you have a very windswept balcony, your containers and the soil in them are going to be quite dry. They're going to be subject to harsher conditions. And so therefore, you're best looking to conditions that in the wild, which are windswept quite harsh. Coastal conditions, for instance, if you bring in plants that thrive in coastal areas, grasses, certain wildflowers they will thrive in those windswept balconies. When I go to wandering around and I see a very beautiful, very beloved balcony, it makes me incredibly happy. I think because they're also such a condensed expression of someone's personality. So you might go and you see one that's just full of pelagoniums, like masses and masses of pelagoniums in every corner of the plot. And then you go and see some that are terribly chic and have big cycads or tree ferns and they're very considered. For many, many people living in cities, balconies are the only outdoor space they have. And so often I see these spaces being used as storage, but they're often very bare. And I just nurture a dream where everyone gardens their balcony. The thing is, if we all spent a little bit of time making our spaces greener and with wildlife in mind, we could have a huge impact on the carbon footprint of the cities. We could have a huge impact on wildlife populations in our cities. If nothing else, it would be incredibly beautiful. Alice Vincent, who this year published a book called Rootbound, Rewilding a life. So we're now heading off to meet a man who's offering a new approach to urban gardening. My name is Freddie Blackett. I'm the founder and CEO of Patch. Patch is a digital brand and we help people to discover the best plants for their space. We then deliver them to their door and then on an ongoing basis after their purchase, we help our customers to look after those plants through a combination of, of care courses, which are on YouTube, but also through our plant doctor service as well. 
are perhaps our most popular plants or some of my favourites personally. We have an indoor plant that is commonly called apothos, which we call Rapunzel. We try to make it easier for people to, to think about plants. And so and one of those ways is, is by naming plants. Other ones are ones that I probably have a bit more of a personal relationship with. So we have a, a plant that many of your listeners will recognise in a Sansevieria trufasciata. I hope I'm pronouncing that as, as, well as, as well as one can. We call that Susie. And the reason we call that Susie is because it's also commonly known, among its tapestry of nicknames, it's known as a mother-in-law's tongue. And my mother-in-law is called Susie. So the Sansevieria was named Susie as a result. And so uh, I suppose there's just been a bit of a gap between what people who live in major cities want and, and need, having a, a latent demand for plants. We've just tried to make it a lot more accessible to people who've perhaps felt a little bit left out in the past. A few of my top tips for, specifically I'd say for, for houseplant gardening, or, or as we call it, houseplant parenting, is the importance, or the value at least, of keeping your plant in its cash pot, in its plastic pot, before planting it into a decorative pot. But that only really works if there is an ability for that plant to drain. And of course, you don't want your beautiful new, whatever it might be, aloe vera, when watered, to drain all over your lovely carpet. So actually, you're much better off using the decorative pot that you place the plant into as a saucer in itself, as, as a vessel to capture any water that drains when you water that plant. I'd say that's, that's probably one. I'd say an, another one which I think is probably less orthodox is that giving your plants a really, really good soaking every now and then is a great way of just giving yourself some reassurance but also just, just helping the plant feel like it's in its bit more of its natural habitat. Taking the plants into the shower is a good way of doing that as well, because you just make sure that it gets a really good draining. And like I say, that you're, you're giving it a really good drenching. In terms of the range that we sell to our customers, it's predicated on our customer profile. So who we are trying to serve, and that is typically someone who's never bought plants before. About half of our customers had never bought plants before coming to Patch, and then about 40% had but failed along the way at some points. And then about 10% considered themselves to be experts, and they, they come to Patch for the convenience that it delivers in terms of literally delivery to the door or some of the other facets of our offering. But thinking about that 90%, those who lack confidence, you know, we, we really try to focus on a easier-to-care-for range of plants, be they mostly, mostly speaking indoors, because... The majority of people who live in a city like London don't have outdoor space. And, and we're trying to help them to think about how they might turn an indoor space, which they'd never even considered as being suitable for plants, being a, a backdrop for some plants. So my hopes for houseplants and their owners, well, in our case, a lot of customers come to us because they're looking for an accessory for the home. But actually, what they end up finding is a new hobby. And they find that because they recognise that plants can do so much more than just sit in the corner of the room, but they can also provide a great escape. But a time where you can put your foe down doesn't provide necessarily a, a negative distraction or that can give you something back. And I think that's really valuable. Freddie Blackett. I think I first came across patch plants in a conversation with a friend who was actually referencing that they've dropped the Latin name and initially the plants are referred to on their website with a human name. So say the spider plant's called Sally 
or the monster is called Martha. And what I thought was so fascinating is people that don't automatically talk in Latin plant names have got something very approachable, very easy to start with. And actually, once you name something, once you give something a human name, you instantly connect with it more. Emotionally, you connect with it more. You know, it's much easier to throw the dying house plant in the bin on the kitchen windowsill when you've had enough of looking at it. But if it's Sally who's been there for the last three months, maybe you want to give Sally a bit more love and you'll connect with it more. So I thought it was a fascinating concept how Patch are using these names to refer to some of their house plants. It's so brilliant to hear that people are coming to gardening through new roots the Instagram and Pinterest generation. If you're looking for more tips and information, the RHS website has some great articles and videos. Just search RHS Beginner Gardening. City dwellers are finding new ways to connect with nature. And one popular method is by making the most of waterways. Many are taken to canals and creating homes in houseboats. The number of barges in London has increased by 84% since 2012 and Poppy Okocha is one of those going afloat. The permaculture designer and organic grower has been living on a houseboat for the past few years and has transformed it into a floating oasis. It's quite a big boat, it's 60 foot long and I garden mainly on the roof, so I have a series of um, old apple crates <laughs> I bought on eBay and they're filled with disused coffee sacks and then inside that I have the soil. And at the moment on the roof, I've got mainly tomatoes because I'm really into the idea of being able to grow enough tomatoes to harvest and then make into tomato sauce to jar up for the winter. That's like the dream. <laughs> And then on the boat deck, I've also got some flowers and currently I've got beans and peas and I've got a big herb box as well. So there's a few bits going on. I really cram it into the space I've got. <laughs> Growing on a boat, of course, limits my space and it also means that I have to grow in containers and growing in containers isn't necessarily easy because you have to water the plants more and you also have to deliver the nutrients to the plant within that container so the plants can't spread their roots out looking for nutrients in other parts of the soil. The other thing is that it's quite exposed <laughs> so the wind where we are can really kind of whip around especially because the plant is up high on the roof so I've noticed that I have to put in supports and some plants grow a bit lopsided dependent on the dominant wind so that can be a bit of a problem. But a benefit is that because we're on the water, in the same way that when you're on the beach, you get more of a tan because the sunlight seems to bounce off the ocean, the plants seem to get a really good blast of sunshine because we're surrounded by water, I think. I mean, that's not proven, but that's my theory. So the way I garden on my boat, I really try to keep in mind as well as sustainability in terms of using less resources and wasting less, I tried to keep in mind creating habitat for species and forage for species other than myself. <laughs> and 
At the moment, we're facing massive levels of extinctions and species lost in our country. And so I think it's really important that we all play our part in providing space for these creatures that are being pushed out slightly. And um, sometimes I think when we hear the numbers about how much bird populations have declined in the UK, for example, it just feels like such a mind-boggling number and so out of reach to fix. But I think it's really important that we remember if we all do little bits and play our part, we can create a patchwork of havens throughout cityscapes. As a permaculture designer, land care is just as important as people care. So giving back to the land and to the other creatures that might be living there with you. So that is definitely a part of what I design into my space. We have our boat on a permanent spot. And so I've been able to connect with a couple of community projects in the area, which has been really inspiring. One of them is called Meanwhile Gardens, and they have a forest garden, which at the beginning of lockdown, we we're doing a lot of foraging from that forest garden. So working with those guys is really, really inspiring. I find community gardens and urban areas really important because the word community, that kind of says it all. I feel like growing on your own is one thing, but the opportunity it brings for learning from each other, for sharing and bonding. I feel like bonding over growing is just such a wonderful healing experience. And I think it brings generations together. It's a really wonderful place to learn and get hands-on experience from people that are usually just so keen to share what they've learned over the years and pass it on. And I think it's really important for us to save that wisdom. A lifetime of gardening experience is just invaluable. Being on a boat, you feel a lot more connected to the seasons and the cycles because we heat our boat with a log burning stove. And so when autumn hits, you're kind of gauging when do we light the stove? Because once we've lit it, we usually try and keep it lit through the whole winter. And if you let it go out, the boat gets cold and you have to wait until it heats up again once you've lit the fire. So you are more connected to the drop in the temperature. And then once it gets warmer in spring, there's a day that you call it and you're like, right, the fire goes out today. <laughs> it's not for everyone, you know, having to light the fire and keep it on and all that stuff. But for me personally, I really enjoy it. I feel it's really grounding so grateful for the setup that we have. Yeah, it feels closest to the wild you can get when you're living in London. <laughs> Poppy Okocha. Hearing Poppy talk about community gardens got me thinking about just how important these spaces are in cities whether to bring people together, share gardening knowledge, or cultivate a sense of pride in a local area. It almost reminds me of the allotments that I often walk past in Fulham, near Putney Bridge, and they are this hub of colour, community, flowers, vegetables, lots of people having a really good time and taking delicious things home to eat, and I'm almost a bit envious I don't have my own plot there too. We're going to be dedicating an upcoming episode of the podcast to these spaces 
and we would love to hear from you. If you're involved in one, what do community gardens mean to you? Send us an email to podcast at rhs.org.uk or tweet us. In next week's show, we'll look into the healing powers, or not, of the plants around us. A large number of plants have compounds and chemicals in them which scientific rigour and scientific evidence has proven to be very valuable to us, but often not in the way that the ancient herbalists thought of. But until next time, it's goodbye from me, Matthew Pottage, and thank you for listening. Walking down the path in my garden, and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Crest robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Crest robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.